0: If you have a Bible, you're going to want to find the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Uh, we had a few open Wednesday nights when we came to the end of our David uh, Wednesday night Bible study. We, we tracked through the life of David. We had about three Wednesday nights left. And um, I asked you, what do you want to sing and what do you want to study? And so you guys requested a number of different hymns. Jake has... Uh, Been so kind as to work some of those requests in. And you guys sent me some great requests for things that we might talk about on Wednesday nights. One that caught my attention was somebody asking, could we talk about Ephesians 4.29? And Ephesians 4.29 uh, says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And I thought, well, that's an interesting verse. That would be an interesting verse to talk about. But we had three Wednesday nights to talk about it, so we just sort of expanded the playing field just a little bit. And we've been looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, all the way down to tonight through verse 32. We have talked about the city of Ephesus, and we've talked about Paul's relationship with the people, with the church in in Ephesus. Paul visited this city for the first time on one of his missionary journeys, and he came back through for the last time as he was traveling back to Jerusalem. And you can read about these two visits in Acts 19 and Acts 20. When you sort through the pages of the New Testament, you realize we know a lot about this city and the church that was located in the city. Uh, We know a lot because Luke tells us about Paul going and uh, visiting and leaving for the last time in the book of Acts. Paul wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. Paul wrote two letters, 1 and 2 Timothy, to the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Then when you get to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the apostle John is writing for Jesus in the first church that he addresses in the seven churches of Asia Minor that are listed in chapter 2 and 3 is the church in the city of Ephesus. And I've often thought it might be fun to do a sermon series on Ephesus. Not so much just the book of Ephesians, but Ephesus. To start in Acts 19, look at Acts 20, work your way through Ephesians, talk about First and 2 Timothy, and end up in the book of Revelation. You'd see the beginning all the way through many, many years later the life of this one church. So we know a lot about this church. For our purposes tonight, the ground that we've covered over the last couple of weeks, here's what you need to remember. Paul wanted his friends in Ephesus to walk differently than the Gentiles walked, and he wanted them to walk differently than the way that they used to walk. He wanted their lives to be different than the way that they used to look. It's just kind of lined up over the last couple of weeks that on Wednesday nights, we're in Ephesians 4. On Sunday mornings, we're in the book of 1 John. In both spots, we're talking about this idea of your walk. What does it mean that we have a walk as Christians? And really, the idea is simple. The walk we have as believers is talking about the entirety, the totality, the sum overall direction of our lives. And for the church in Ephesus, Paul is writing back to his friends and he's saying, I don't want you to walk like all of the other people in Ephesus walk. I don't want you to live like all of the other non-Christian people live. And I don't want you to live the way that you used to live. I want there to be something different about your lives. That brings us to the hope of Ephesians, and it's really the hope of Ephesians 4, Jesus saves sinners and Jesus changes sinners. That's just sort of a simple summary of the book of Ephesians. Our salvation is a result of God's grace expressed to us through Jesus Christ, received because the Holy Spirit is working in us. Jesus saves us and Jesus changes us. We begin our lives walking in a certain direction, we meet Jesus, and our walk moves in a completely new direction. So Ephesians 4, we're going to read the entire passage, verse 17 down to verse 32, and then we're going to pray. Paul says this, writing to his friends in Ephesus, This I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as is the truth in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another." Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Here's our verse, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the last few Wednesday nights where we have studied from the book of Ephesians. What a remarkable book. What a a remarkable couple of paragraphs that we've studied as Paul talks about our walk and as he talks about putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And tonight we see these specific truths, these specific commands Uh, these specific ideas that Paul sets before us. Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to receive your word. Uh, Father, give us wisdom as we think about what it looks like in our lives to put off the old self and to put on the new self. Father, we ask all of this, asking for your help, asking for your grace, asking for your spirit to empower us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look in this paragraph and you look at verse 25, you'll notice that verse 25 begins with the word, therefore. One of the most basic, simple rules of Bible study and Bible interpretation is that when you come across the word, therefore, in the Bible, you've got to make sure that you understand everything that has come before it, at least immediately, so that you understand what's going to come after it. And so in verse 25, Paul says, Therefore, in the immediate context is the previous paragraph that we've spent two weeks talking about. In verse 17, he says, don't walk like the Gentiles. Many of these people were, in fact, Gentiles. Paul says, don't walk that way. Don't walk like all the other non-Christian people. Don't walk like you used to walk. Verse 20, he says, what's changed in your life is that you have learned Christ, We've talked about for two weeks now that that that's a strange phrasing. Paul's intentionally grouping together words that you normally wouldn't group together, learning Christ to say there is content that you learn, but Christianity is more than just intellectual content and understanding and cognitive growth. It's a relationship. You're learning a person. You have met Jesus, and then he comes to what we spent time talking about last week, verse 22, putting off your old self, verse 24, putting on your new self. Put off and put on. And literally the words that he uses here describe taking off one set of clothes and putting on another set of clothes. So you could think about a number of things. I gave you the illustration last week of yard work gets you dirty and you take off your dirty clothes, you put on clean clothes. You could think about a, an actor or an actress in a play who maybe goes backstage and changes costumes. They put off one costume, they put on a new costume. We have a built-in concept of this over the last few weeks in the coronavirus, and we've seen pictures like this one where nurses and doctors are working in hospitals. When they go to work, they put on personal protective equipment. They wear a mask, and they wear a face shield, and they wear a gown, and they wear gloves, and they put on all of this special clothing because they know they're going to be exposed to a contaminant when they go to work. Then when those people leave work, they don't just hop in the car with all of that stuff on and go home and hug their kids and hug their parents and hug their grandparents. They take it all off. There's a putting on and there's a putting off. That's the heart of the idea in Ephesians 4. It's what Paul is calling his friends to do. Put one thing on and put another thing off. Put off your old self. Paul understands that sin is a deadly contaminant, and he doesn't want the the Christians in Ephesus to just walk around clothed in their old selves. He says, put it off. It's deadly. It's dangerous. It's disgusting. Put it off. And then he says, put on the new self that is holy and that is righteous. So last week, we talked about the general idea of putting off and putting on. This week, Paul gets... Specific. And he gives us five specific things that we are to put off and to put on. And I just want to start with a quote from a Bible commentary. A lot of commentators make this observation, but this quote comes from a guy named Tony Merida. And he just makes a very simple observation about our passage. If you can get the idea of this quote in your brain, the rest of the passage is very, very simple. To track through, he says, first of all, these practical exhortations are relational. Just make note of that. Everything that Paul's about to tell us to do involves relationships, not necessarily horizontally with God, but vertically with other Christians, with other people. So we're talking about relational behavior. Second, notice how there's a negative action stated first and then a positive action. This is the putting off and the putting on. And it's not good enough to just go halfway. It's not good enough just to put off one thing without also putting on what Paul is calling us to. Third, notice that there's a theological reason given for why we should throw these sinful vices, throw off these sinful vices, and put on these Christian actions. In other words, Paul explains himself. I want you to stop doing this. I want you to start doing that, and here's why. And he undergirds all of this with sound doctrine, with sound theology. So, in Ephesians 4, Verse 25 to 32, Paul details five specific examples of putting off and putting on. And I think this goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyways. These are not the only five areas of our lives where we're called to put something off and put it on. It's not like this is a five-item checklist and you work through the list and then you're done. This involves our walk, the entirety of the Christian life. And these are simply examples. And so we'll just go through the list. Number one, put off falsehood, Paul says, and put on the truth. Put off falsehood, put on the truth. Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, that's the put off, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Do not be dishonest but speak the truth with your neighbor. Most Bible scholars detect a quote from Zechariah chapter 8 in this call to speak the truth with your neighbor. Clearly, it's a, a reference to the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. And a couple of months back on Wednesday nights, we actually worked our way through the Ten Commandments. And one of the things we said when we went through the commandments is that when one of the commandments says, Don't do this. There's an implication that you are to do something else. And when one of the commandments says, this is what you should do, there's an implication that there's something that you most certainly should not do. They are positive and negative, whether that's explicit or implicit. And that's certainly true here. Put off falsehood, put on the truth. Don't be a liar, be an honest person. Being an honest person, as Paul is thinking about it, does not necessarily mean that you say everything that comes to your mind when you're at church interacting with other people. It doesn't necessarily mean if the person sitting next to you is singing off key that you need to turn to them and honestly tell them you're singing off key. You probably don't need to say anything at all. It certainly doesn't mean that if you show up to church for the first time after a month and a half, two months in quarantine, and you see somebody who normally sits by you at church, and you look at that person and you think... That's the worst haircut I've ever seen in my life. You don't need to ask them, did you cut your hair yourself? You don't need to say that's a terrible haircut. It doesn't mean that we say anything and everything that comes into our minds, regardless of how it might impact another person. It does mean we're going to be honest people. Why does it matter? Here's the reason. Believers are members of one body. And if there's anything that will tear a church apart, it's dishonesty and lying between members and groups and leadership and laity and this class or that class. It'll destroy a church. This idea of being part of the same body carries with it the point Paul's trying to make. If your body lies to itself, the end is self-destruction. If your eyes lie to your hands and tell you that the grill is not hot when it really is hot, you get burned. And if your ears lie to your feet and tell you that truck is not coming your direction, it's not getting closer down the street, and you step out onto the street, you get hit by the truck. If you lie to yourself, if there's dishonesty, dishonesty within the body, The end is self-destruction, and so Paul simply says you need to put off falsehood, and you need to put on the truth. Second, put off unrighteous anger and put on righteous anger. Put off unrighteous anger and put on righteous anger. Look what he says in verse 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Most commentators say Paul's making a distinction between what we might call righteous indignation, the kind of anger that we ought to feel, the kind of anger that wells up in you when you see a child who's been hurt or abused. You ought to be angry at something like that. He's making a distinction between righteous indignation and just sort of a temper, sinful, hot-headedness being angry over things that really don't matter. And it's interesting that he actually tells us, he commands us, be angry. There are certain things he wants us to be angry about, but in that anger, he doesn't want us to sin. One Bible commentator, F.F. Bruce, I think makes a great point. This point just kind of hits me right between the eyes. He says, there is no doubt a proper place for righteous indignation, But there's a subtle temptation to regard my anger as righteous anger and other people's anger as sheer bad temper. I think we're all prone to that. We're prone to look at ourselves and give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and cut ourselves some slack and say, oh, I'm just filled with holy, righteous anger. All of those other people are just hotheads. The reality is we need to do some putting off. We need to put off unrighteous anger we need to put on righteous anger. Paul says specifically, don't let the sun go down on your anger. I think his point is pretty simple. He's saying don't let it fester. Don't just let it sit there in your heart and in your mind and think that nothing's going to go wrong simply because you refuse to let go of this sinful, wicked anger. When he says don't let the sun go down on it, he's not giving us a deadline. He's not necessarily saying you must not go to sleep until you deal with all of your issues. There is no loophole for our friends in Alaska who live in a place certain times of the year where the sun literally never goes down. They don't get a larger window, a a two-month window, when the sun stays up all year long. It's not a strict chronology. It's just wise advice. And Paul's saying, look, don't let anger sit in your heart. Don't let it just sit there and fester, because eventually it will boil over. And his reasoning is fascinating. I don't know what a lot of Americans do with this logic, but in verse 27, he talks about the devil, and what he says is, give no opportunity to the devil. Literally, don't give the devil space to operate. Jesus uses the same Greek word that Paul's using here when Jesus talks about evil spirits being cast out of a person and they go around looking for a place. And if they don't find one, they come back to where they were. And it's possible that the, the person is now worse off than they were before because the Spirit brings others with them. They're looking for a place. And literally what Paul says when he says don't give opportunity is don't give a place, don't give a space, don't give a foothold to the devil. None of us like to think of ourselves as following Satan, serving Satan, living for Satan. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that before our salvation, that's exactly what we did. We were followers of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath. Even after our salvation, it's possible that in allowing anger, just think about this, And allowing anger, unrighteous anger, to sit in our hearts, we're actually creating a safe space. We hear about safe spaces today. We're creating a safe space for Satan to operate in our lives, in our homes, and in our churches. Put off unrighteous anger. Put on righteous anger so that you are not inviting the devil into your life. Number three. Put off stealing, or you could say theft, and put on hard work. Do not steal. Let the thief not, no longer steal. That's the word that Paul uses. So we're going to put off stealing. What we're going to put on is hard work. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. And the reasoning is really simple. Why should you do honest work with your own hands? Is it so that you can have a a cushy, comfortable retirement someday? That's not his logic. Is it so you can be self-sufficient? The Bible talks about the importance of supporting yourself, supporting your family, but it doesn't talk about it here. Is it so that you can spend more and play more? That's not the reasoning that Paul gives here. The reasoning that Paul gives us for why we should no longer steal, but we should labor doing honest work, is so that the former converted thief may now have something to share with anyone who's in need. God wants us to help those in need. That's the logic. Now look, I'm a proud American. I'm hoping that Fourth of July rolls around and we can all shoot off fireworks and be together with our families and have barbecues and celebrate and be thankful for the country that we live in. But it's worth acknowledging for all of us that the typical version of the American dream that gets peddled in this country is that you can come here, you can work hard, and the benefits the rewards, the fruits of your labor are you can spend on yourself and you can live a great life. That might be the American dream. It's not the Christian ethic. The Christian ethic when it comes to work is you should work hard, number one, because work honors God in and of itself. He created you to work. But secondly, you work hard, not just so that you have more to spend and consume, but so that you can help others. Who are in genuine need. So we're going to put off stealing. We're going to put on hard work. Number four, here's our verse that we've been building up to over the last three weeks put off corrupting talk and put on encouraging talk. Put off corrupting talk, put on encouraging talk. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. That word corrupting literally means rotten. It's used in the Bible and in other ancient sources to talk about rotten fruit. It's used in the Bible and other ancient sources to talk about rotten meat. Let no rotten talk come out of your mouths. So I'll tell you a story about this idea of something being rotting, uh, rotted, or corrupted. Um, My mom, growing up, that's my mom and my dad on the left. Uh, My mom was a children's minister at our church. All the years that I grew up, she led the children's ministry, birth through uh, fifth grade at our church, and she did a great job at that. Over on the right is Tracy Ward and his wife Kathleen. They were at their daughter's wedding recently in that picture and Tracy was our youth pastor and uh, Tracy was new to our church. He had not been there a long time and uh, Tracy and my mom developed an inner office feud and they were playing jokes on each other and uh, one would hide behind the door or I think at one point someone hid under a desk and jumped out and scared somebody, and someone else went to their office and rearranged everything, and they had this sort of little fun feud going back and forth. In the middle of that feud, we had a, a church Easter pageant. And the Easter pageant, we really went all out for this thing. We didn't do that every year at our church growing up, but we went all out. And the foyer of our church, we had a big foyer. We decorated the foyer like a Middle Eastern market or a Middle Eastern bazaar. And we had animals in there, and we had people dressed up in there, and we had booths set up in there. And at one point in the Middle Eastern market, there was some fish. Somebody had gone to the grocery store over to the meat market and just bought fish. And they just set it out in the foyer of the church and thought, well, this is just going to add to the atmosphere and the ambiance. This is going to be great. And so there you were when you walked in for the play. The fish was there, just both eyes looking at you. And it was fresh, so it was fine. And they put it on ice and they had every intention, every intention of throwing it away that evening or when the play was done. But my mom and Tracy were in the middle of this. In her office feud and it was my mom's turn so she went and grabbed one of the fish and during the pageant she went and snuck into Tracy's office and got a chair and reached up on the top of his bookshelf that almost went all the way to the ceiling and put that fish up on top of his bookshelf and then closed the door and left and didn't say anything. The next day was fine and the next day was okay but about the second or third day it was not okay. And Tracy was looking, what is that smell? Is it in the walls? Did an animal die? Is it a mouse? What in the world? And it was getting worse and it was getting worse and it was getting worse. And what it was, was rotten fish, corrupting fish. As I describe it to you, you just sort of make a face and you squint and you say, oh, that's gross. That's disgusting. That's the word Paul's using when he talks about the words coming out of your mouth. Don't let that kind of talk come out of your mouth. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. That might be lying. That might be just abusive, mean-spirited language. It might be vulgar, crude, coarse joking. It might be gossip. It might be slander. It could be flattery, saying uh, untrue things to a person, not because you're just trying to be kind, but because you're trying to get something out of that person. You're being manipulative. This could be a number of different things. Paul simply says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Now, I know that when you're growing up, your mom used to tell you, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. I love my mama even if she hides fish in people's office. I love your mama, if I've met her or haven't. But this idea of if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, doesn't go nearly far enough. Paul does not say, don't let any corrupting talk come out of your mouth, period. That's not the call. That's half of it. Put off corrupting talk. Don't say anything, quote-unquote, referring to your mom, not nice. The other half in verse 29 is, Let stuff come out of your mouth that is good for building up, that fits the occasion, that it might give grace to those who hear. The stuff that comes out of your mouth, our words, should be gracious. Be gracious. Be gracious. think about what God's grace does in our lives. It gives us life. It's undeserved. It, It builds us up. It strengthens us. It sustains us. That's what your words ought to do to other people. It's not enough just to refrain from corrupting talk. You also have to take the next step and put on encouraging talk, talk that builds others up, talk that gives grace to those who hear. One last example Paul gives us, put off bitterness and wrath, and I've just summarized some of the words that he, he mentions. Put off bitterness and wrath, put on kindness and forgiveness. I, I think verse 30 and 31 and 32 all go together. I think uh, the put off and put on is in the middle and the reasoning is wrapped all around it. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another as god in christ forgave you i think it's fascinating that when paul wrote to his friends in ephesus and he's talking about putting off and putting on he gives them five specifics two of them have to deal essentially with anger i mean there's a lot of issues he could have brought up could have talked about pride and humility. That seems like an obvious choice. He could have talked about uh, sharing your faith, uh, evangelizing in some sense. He could have talked about a, a number of different things. Stop doing this and start doing that. He brings up anger twice. It's almost like he knew and remembered that was a problem for these people. It was a struggle for these people. It's almost like Paul knows us as human beings that we wrestle with this, we struggle with this. and So he mentions it twice. We're going to put off bitterness and wrath. We're going to put on kindness and forgiveness. I mentioned to you earlier that you get to the book of Revelation and there's a letter from Jesus to the church in Ephesus. He rebukes that church because they've lost their first love. And I'll admit, the majority of Bible commentators, even one I read today just Uh, non-related reading. The majority of Bible commentators think when Jesus rebukes the church in Ephesus for losing their first love, he's talking about the love they had for him. I go with the majority of Bible commentators, and I think he's saying, you've lost the love that you once had for each other. It was an issue for this church. They struggled with anger and bitterness and wrath, and Paul says, you've got to put on kindness And forgiveness. Put off bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. Put on kindness, a tender heart, and forgiveness. Why? His reasoning is the gospel. God forgave us in Christ, and the Holy Spirit lives in us. That's why you should do it. You should do this for each other, because that's what God has done for you. God forgave you, and a forgiven person should in turn be a forgiving person. So we're going to put off bitterness, We're going to put on kindness. We don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit who lives in us. That's what God has done for us. That's what he's doing in us, and that's how we ought to treat each other. Now, I just want to acknowledge one last thought as we we wrap this up. When you read these verses, especially if you just read them as we've studied them, verse 17 to verse 32, this feels very much like a checklist. It feels very much like, here are the things that I need to do in my life, and Paul says, I'm going to put one thing off, and I'm going to put one thing on. So I'm going to list these things out in my journal, and I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to have my quiet time, and I'm going to do business with God, and I'm going to put this stuff off, and I'm going to put this stuff on, and I'm going to check all the boxes on the page, and then I'm going to move on to something else. And I just like to quote a great theologian who hopefully we'll see in the fall, College Game Day's Lee Corso, not so fast, my friend. Not so fast. This is not a checklist of boxes that you work through in a 15-minute quiet time. This is not a list of things that you sit down and think about and pray about and say, okay, this is what God wants me to do. God, I'm not gonna lie anymore, I'm... I'm not going to be unrighteously angry anymore and I'm going to work hard so that I can, I'm going to do all these things and then you can just sort of check the boxes and move on with it. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about our walk. That's where the whole conversation begins back up in verse 17 where he says you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Don't Walk that way. Put off that kind of walk and put on a new kind, meaning the entire orientation and direction of your life has to change. So now I'll quote a truly great theologian, Martin Luther. This is thesis number one of the 95 theses that he nailed to the church door in Wittenberg. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance it's not a one time thing only now to be very clear if you're not a follower of Jesus there must be a moment when for the very first time you repent of your sin you turn away from your sin and you trust in Jesus you believe the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ was crucified For your salvation. You repent and you believe. And you do that in a moment. It happens. But then it needs to continue to happen. Day two of your salvation. Week five of your salvation. Year 27 of your salvation. Decade six of your salvation. You're continuing to live this life of repentance. Turning from sin trusting in Jesus, or as Paul describes it here, putting off the old self and putting on the new self. You don't do that over and over and over, day after day after day, because you're trying to earn your way with God, or you're trying to make yourself acceptable to God. It's not a works-based system. Paul has made that so clear in Ephesians 2. This is the result of Jesus' saving sinners, and Jesus changing sinners. He saves us by his grace, and by that same grace, he changes us. And our walk moves in a new direction. And our lives begin to be marked by this idea that we're putting off the old, and we're putting on the new.